Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, as we have uh, already heard this morning, today is the first Sunday in Lent. That is the season uh, of the church year where the church prepares to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, the, the practices of self-reflection and repentance and prayer, these are, these are practices that are good and necessary for everyone who follows Jesus all of the time. And we focus on them in particular during the season of Lent. Uh, Lent is 40 days long, not including Sundays, and that's very intentional. That uh, period of time is, is an intentional way of connecting it with things like God's people wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, or Elijah on his 40-day journey in the wilderness, or Jesus being tempted and fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. So what we're going to do for the next five weeks is read wilderness passages together. In Scripture, uh, the wilderness isn't just a place that hems civilization in. It's not just the place out there. In Scripture, um, the wilderness is a place of testing and trouble and repentance. It is a place of renewal and new beginnings and grace. So we're going to start this morning uh, by reading about something that happened deep in the Sinai wilderness. I'm going to read from Exodus 3 for us, verses 1 through 12. You can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. 
This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just sang together that even when we do see, we see in, in a kind of darkness. <laughs> and we ask, Father, that as we talk about this word that we have just read and heard together, as we think about it for a few minutes, that to the extent that we don't know that's true or believe that's true, that you would help us um, to believe it, that we need your help to see. Father, we ask that you'd meet us um, in all of the places that we have come from in exactly the states that we're in right now, that you'd show us how much you love us in Jesus and that you would change us by it. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, I, uh, I have an uncle named Orville Elmer Postawaite, Jr. Orville Elmer Postawaite, Jr., I'm not making light of his name. I'm just telling you what it is. Um, But I do think it is worth noting that no one has ever called him anything but Butch his entire life. I mean, I I was shocked to find out that his name was actually Orville Elmer. He had always been Uncle Butch to me. And from my perspective, he has fully inhabited (laughs) every last inch of that name for his whole life. I mean, when all of the cousins, it was all boys, when we were all younger and we would be together at Thanksgiving or something, we would hang on every last goofy word that came out of his mouth. Um, I don't think I ever heard Uncle Butch say something serious to me until I was a grown man. <laughs> and, I, and I love him for it. He would mess with every last one of us cousins relentlessly. He'd make up ridiculous nicknames for us. Every time we were out in public with him, he would embarrass us. He would tell tall tales. I mean, basically all of the greatest uncle stuff. That's what Uncle Butch did. And so I should have known better when one day he picked up a a deck of cards and he asked me if I wanted to learn how to play 52 pickup. I mean, I know that most of you know what 52 pickup is, but I definitely did not know at the time. I just thought, man, it's going to be so fun to play cards with him. So yes, Uncle Butch, teach me how to play 52 pickup. At which point he took that deck of cards and he flung it across the room, spreading those cards everywhere, and he looked at me and said, okay, pick them up. The pitiless merciless reality of 52 pickup. In one second, that whole room full of cards was my responsibility. And church, that's what happened to Moses out there on the far side of the wilderness under the shadow of the great mountain, looking at the strangest thing he'd ever seen in his life. He wasn't out looking for answers. Moses was not out that morning searching for meaning. He wasn't trying to find some new direction in his life, but completely unbidden, God shows up. And in the time it takes to say a sentence, Moses gets saddled with a responsibility that no sane person would ever seek out or accept if they had a choice. I'll send you to Pharaoh. I'm sending you to Pharaoh, God says. Moses is immediately filled with self-doubt. He is immediately filled with dread. And church, that makes a ton of sense. But God meets Moses out there in the wilderness with his grace. He does it again and again and again. And he does it in your wilderness and in mine too. 
So the story begins that Moses was keeping his, the flock of his, his uh, father-in-law Jethro. Moses was watching the flock of his father-in-law. And I guess it goes without saying, this is not where we would have expected to see Moses, <laughs> given the direction of his early years, just out there taking care of someone else's animals in the arid wastelands of the Sinai. If you don't know that story already, you can read it in Exodus 2, but I can tell you how Moses has gotten to that place. He was born in Egypt during a very dangerous time for Hebrew boys to be born. God's people had settled into Egypt, and over many, many, many years, they had grown into a significant nation. They had prospered into a significant people, but the Pharaoh had come to loathe and fear them because he was concerned that maybe they would align with his enemies to end up taking the land of Egypt from him. So this is what he did. Slowly, methodically, brutally, he began to enslave the Hebrew people. And servitude was not enough. It was not enough for the callous Pharaoh who was ruling when Moses was born. That Pharaoh had insinuated a plan to simply kill all of the boys that were born to Hebrew women. And this is what leads to Moses being hidden in a basket and floated in a river shortly after he's born. He's found by Pharaoh's daughter. He's taken in. He's raised in the royal family. He grows into manhood. And then one day, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And he thinks nobody's looking. And he kills that Egyptian. And he buries his body. But someone did see him, and now Moses is exposed as a murderer. Pharaoh puts out the hit on him, and Moses flees to Midian as a fugitive. Moses runs from his past. That's the Moses who's out there with that flock. The Hebrew turned Egyptian, turned murderer, turned fugitive. That's who's out there with the flock. He's lived the last 40 years of his life in hiding. With a death on his conscience, living in the kind of obscurity he would have never imagined after his very auspicious upbringing. So he's taken the flock to the west side of the wilderness, or as it sometimes gets translated, the back side of the wilderness, or the far side of the wilderness or deep into the wilderness. The point is that he is way out there. He's not going to be home for dinner that night. He's not going to be home for breakfast the next morning. He's way out there. He ambles the flock all the way out to the base of Mount Horeb, which will come to be known soon enough as the mountain of God. But the mountain is not what catches Moses' attention out there. What he sees is a bush that is burning and not being consumed. That is a very strange sight. So he moves a little closer for a look, and as he does, God, God, shrouded in the obscurity of this completely otherworldly thing, calls his name Moses, Moses, and he answers, and then God stops him in his tracks. He tells him to take off his sandals because he has arrived now on holy ground. And that's when God introduces himself to Moses. I'm the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham. 
I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. And the next line makes so much sense to me. (laughs) Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Look, I don't know what Moses knew about God at the time. I have no idea. (laughs) I don't know if there was ever a time when he was in Pharaoh's court where he was allowed to learn about this God that his people, the Hebrews, served. I don't know if you ever learned about the relationship that that God had staked out with the Hebrew people. I don't know if he had ever heard about the promises that had been, been made or that if he knew that story, he even remembered it now so many years later, if it meant anything to him at all. I don't know, but I do know that none of it matters. None of that matters. Moses' theology or his lack of theology had absolutely no relevance to the fear and to the dread that he is experiencing that moment. It is simply God's presence. (laughs) It's just God being there, right there in that moment that makes him afraid. And he is afraid because he is completely exposed in that presence. Not just that he's a murderer, not just that he's been running and hiding for most of his life. I mean, that's there for sure. But everything, everything about Moses is exposed because that's what happens when anyone comes face to face with God and gets a sense for his terrible, ineffable weight of being, for his beauty, his perfection, his white-hot, unfathomable otherness. That's what happens in church. That is a good thing. It is a really, really good thing. Maybe the best thing that could ever happen. It's needful for people like you and me to come face to face with the terrible beauty of God. Because then you know what happens? All of our, uh, all of our self-justifications all of our deceptions, all of that behavior that we draw big circles around and pretend that it's okay. All of our stupid pride and our callous contempt, all of our demeaning talk, all of that stuff gets exposed in an instant and it gets laid bare and naked and ugly. And when it happens, it's really, really good. It's really good for people like us because that is the beginning of something new. That is the beginning of something. It's the beginning of feeling hungry and thirsty for something more and better. And that's the truth, even if it doesn't feel very good when it's happening. <laughs> for some of us, those, those moments could come unbidden, like, like it did with Moses. I mean, Moses didn't go out that morning looking for it. He was just putting in another day at the office. but graciously God showed up and sometimes that's how it happens with us we're out running errands, we're watching a movie we're listening to some music and then all of a sudden we somehow become aware of God and who he is and who we are sometimes it happens when we're looking for it maybe in worship while we're singing about who God is or when we hear some throwaway line in a boring sermon or when we hear of a friend talk about their walk with God or we're up in the middle of the night because we can't sleep and we're praying and reading scripture. 
No matter how it comes, church, every one of us needs it. Every human being needs it. We need to have the truth of who we are and who God is clarified for us, and we need to wrestle with it. (laughs) Otherwise, we're just skimming over the surface of things in life. We're just whistling in the dark. John Calvin called this the whole sum of our wisdom, which is worth calling true and certain. Knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. And for Moses, it it has just happened. (laughs) For Moses, it has happened. And what happens next is exactly the reason that I'm telling you it's a good thing. Because when God speaks again, it is all of grace. This is the first thing God does. He tells Moses that he has seen the affliction and the oppression of his people who are in slavery in Egypt. He's heard their cry. God tells him, I know what their sufferings are. And it's hard to imagine, right, what Moses would have been thinking as he is hearing God tell him these things. He'd seen all that stuff too a lifetime ago. And maybe it reawakened those feelings he had on that fateful day when he tried to take things into his own hands and become his own avenger and he killed a man. And then God tells Moses, here's why I've come down. I've come down to deliver them. I've come down to bring them up out of that land and lead them into the land of promise. The the oppression, the suffering, the affliction. Moses, all of it's going to end. It's all going to end. And I'm sure Moses is thinking, wow, this is the most astounding thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm sure he's wondering, why is God telling me any of this? I'm sure he's wondering, how's God going to pull that off? And then God takes that deck of cards and he flings it across the room and he says, you pick it up. I'm going to send you, Moses. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you can bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And in one second, Moses is responsible for that whole huge mess. And church, there's a lot of things you can say about a divine comedy like that. First, it really messes with your idea of leadership, doesn't it? (laughs) Of who gets to be a leader and how they get there. It's another thing, it's a great reminder that God loves to come alongside the broken and the washed up. I mean, if we have the courage to be honest, we'll confess that's really good news. (laughs) But the thing I want us to think about is that this is what he does. This is what God does for Moses. This is what he does after he has been completely exposed and laid bare. He does not drag him through the years of shame and hiding. Instead, this is Moses' day of salvation. (laughs) He gives him life. He gives him a new beginning out there in the wilderness. He gives Moses a vocation for the life of the world. And church, this is what happens when we follow Jesus in faith. We are given a new beginning. We are given life. We are given a vocation for the life of the world. That's what happens, and it's the truth. Now, of course, as as soon as Moses hears this, he, he strings together a bunch of attempts, five of them, to dodge this calling. And I get that, and maybe you do too. I think all of us get it. The first one of these dodges is to ask God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh. Who am I? Moses isn't asking a philosophical question about his existence. 
Moses is asking a question that's honest, that comes straight from his gut. A question that is weighted and colored by the shape of his real life up until that point. He knows that that stuff is not hidden from God. (laughs) And Moses is doing his best to reason with God. And by one way of looking at it, he's definitely got a point. He's just a shepherd in hiding with a sketchy past he's been trying to outrun. He's got a history back there in Egypt. And it's not good. Moses lives under the shadows of his shame. He lives under the shadows of his failures. Those things have crept into who he is and they have begun to form his identity. That's why he asks, who am I? I know what it feels like to live under the weight of that kind of stuff. Maybe you do too. The things that we're ashamed of, the things that we have failed at, they stick with us way longer than the stuff we've done well or gotten right. Those things wound us and they hobble us. And it's no use to pretend that that stuff never happened or to excuse it or to explain it away. What we need in that moment, what we need in that moment is to be forgiven. And then to have a stronger and more beautiful and more powerful reality seep its way into us and weaken all that stuff and weaken its grip on us and begin to heal those wounds. That's what we need. And that's what God does for Moses out there in the wilderness. Moses asks, who am I? And God says, but I will be with you. God isn't pretending who am I isn't a really good question. God isn't pretending that time heals all the wounds. He's not pretending that those things from Moses' past don't matter or that they don't have any power. God's not pretending anything. He knows Moses and his troubled history and his insecurities and his wounds like the back of his hand. Who are you, Moses? You're the one who's with me. That's who you are, Moses. You're the one who's with me. You're with me now. And I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to walk with you through everything I'm asking you to do in this world. This is for sure, for sure, the best thing Moses has ever heard in his life. And it is the one truth that can weaken all that other stuff from his past and begin to heal those wounds. And I'm telling you, church, when he lives into it eventually, it changes everything. And nothing about the way that God is with people like us has changed from that day to this one. (laughs) Nothing. When people like us follow Jesus in faith, we get that same good news. Whatever wilderness we may find ourselves in, and no matter how we got to that wilderness, we get the same good news. Through the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, we are forgiven And then this newer, stronger, more powerful, more beautiful identity begins to seep into us every day and weaken the grip of our past and heal those old wounds. Who are we? (laughs) Who are we? We're with him. We're his. He's our elder brother. We're his sisters and brothers. We're with him, and he is with us. 
And that promise is as sure to us as it was to old Moses. Behold, I am with you, Jesus says, even to the end of the age. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would, when we are in that moment of wilderness, when we hear that same calling and question in our lives, when we come face to face with you and we ask ourselves, who are we? (laughs) Who am I? Father, we ask that you would help us to be a people who can answer in faith. We're the ones who are with you. Father, we ask that you would help us to be able to answer that way because we believe it is true down into the depth of who we are. When we question it, help us to look again to the cross of Jesus and know that it's true. Father, strengthen us so that we will mature in our own faith. Strengthen us so that in our own vocation for the life of the world, we can be a people that love this broken place in the way that you loved it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.